I came across a story this past week that I thought I just had to share with you. I loved it so much. Uh, years ago, there was a certain Christian man uh, who liked to go hunting. And one day, one of his longtime dreams came true. He was able to purchase two purebred Irish setter puppies. He brought them home and, oh, aren't they cute? Aren't they, darling? Unfortunately, they didn't stay that way. They got a lot bigger. The months passed and the Irish setters put on a lot of weight and a lot of muscle and they became the best hunting dogs and bird dogs he had ever had. Well, when they were one or two years old, the man was sitting out on his back porch one day and he noticed some creature coming down the alley beside their house. And it was a snarling, slobbering bulldog. And that bulldog was strutting down that alley, and he was snarling and huffing and puffing. And he found a low spot, actually a high spot, I should say, in the fence. And so he gets down on all fours there and crawls under the fence into the man's backyard. And then that bulldog has the audacity to come in and start picking a fight with the man's two setters. Well, the man knew full well that his two full-grown setters could eat that bulldog for lunch. And so his first impulse was to yank his two dogs out of the yard and put them in the house. But he thought a second time. He said, you know what? I'm going to let my dogs teach that old bulldog a lesson. He'll never forget. And so he let the thing play out. Well, the bulldog continues picking a fight with the two setters, and the two setters go after him. And they shoot him up one side and down the other. After about five minutes, the bulldog had had enough, and he goes back to that low spot, and he crawls under the fence and leaves. Well, the next day, the man happens to be out on the porch around the same time, and he can't believe his ears. He hears the snarling once again as that bulldog starts coming up the alley, once again crawls under his fence, and picks a fight with his two setters. And so he's like, boys, go get him. And so the setters go get him. And they knock the stuffing out of that bulldog. He crawls back under the fence just like he had the day before. Third day, guess what happens? Same dog, same time, same end results. Those two setters clean that bulldog's clock, crawls under the fence and leaves. Well, the fourth day, the man had to leave on a business trip for a couple weeks. And so he goes on his trip, comes back a couple weeks later, and he asks his wife for an update on what the deal is with the dogs. He was curious what had happened since he had been gone. And to his surprise, this is what his wife said. She said, honey... Every morning at the same time, that little bulldog crawled under our fence and fought with our two setters. He didn't miss a day. And I want you to know it has come to the point that when our setters simply hear that bulldog snorting down the alley and spot him squeezing under the fence, they immediately start whining and run into the house. Now that scrappy little bulldog struts around our backyard like he owns the place. <laughs> Not the ending we would have expected, right? And I got to thinking, that ornery, scrappy little bulldog, that's the Apostle Paul. It is. That's the Apostle Paul. Paul took a licking, and he kept on ticking. Even though Paul had been deathly ill in Perga, chased out of Pisidian Antioch, stoned in Lystra, flogged in Philippi, arrested in Jerusalem, and had his life threatened multiple times, he refused to give up. He refused to back down. 
He refused to go away. He just kept coming back and taking whatever blows necessary to spread the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I want to be that determined. I want to be that resilient. I want to be that tough for Jesus Christ. Well, when we left off two weeks ago in Acts 23, Paul had just been whisked away from his hearing before the Jewish Sanhedrin. For the third time in a 24-hour period, the Roman commander, Commander Lysias, rescued Paul from an angry mob. A day earlier, he had rescued Paul twice in the temple courts. And on this occasion, he had to rescue Paul from a tug-of-war match between the Pharisees and the Sadducees there in the Jewish High Council, the Sanhedrin. After Paul was taken back to the safety of the barracks, the Fortress of Antonia, as it was called, Look again at this beautiful message that Jesus Christ spoke to Paul the following night. It's right there in verse 11 here in Acts chapter 23. Look at at what Jesus says to him. There in verse 11 we read, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus says, Paul, take courage. Take courage. That timely word from the Lord was music to Paul's ears. In all likelihood, he had begun to wonder if his dream of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the capital of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, he had begun to wonder if that was just a pipe dream. Would it ever become reality? Over the past few days, Commander Lysias had rescued him from an angry mob three times. But maybe the fourth time, Commander Lysias wouldn't be so successful. Paul was beginning to wonder if he would likely be killed in Jerusalem. But Jesus came to Paul in the stillness of the night, and he gave him one command and one promise. First of all, the command, he said, take courage. That's how it reads in the NIV translation. Notice how it reads in a couple other translations. The New Century Version and several others say it this way. Paul, be brave. I like that. Be brave. And then the New King James Version says it this way, be of good cheer. Isn't that good? That's the one command. Be courageous. Be brave. Be of good cheer. And then Jesus in that same little verse gives him one promise. And it goes like this. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That's all the assurance Paul needed to hear. No matter how many of Paul's enemies in Jerusalem tried to kill him, no matter how many mobs tried to lynch him, they would never succeed. Just as Jesus had given Paul the desire of his heart to share the good news of Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus, he was also going to give Paul the desire of his heart to share the good news of Jesus Christ in that capital city of Rome. Jesus promised it. And Jesus' promises, just like his word, are as good as gold. Amen? Amen. Well, is there any doubt that as Paul drifted off to sleep that night, his heart was at rest? Jesus Christ had promised him that it would all be okay. He would make it to Rome. Well, we're going to pick up in verse 12 of Acts chapter 23. So once again, please follow along in your Bibles. Acts chapter 23 beginning in verse 12. We read, 
The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you at the pretext of wanting to get more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he ever gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something important to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young boy, the young man, by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because there are more than 40 of them waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed Paul. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. May God bless us as we read and study his word today. Verses 12 and 13 are really pretty interesting, I think. The morning after Jesus promised Paul that he would have the opportunity to uh, speak the word of God there in Rome, more than 40 Jewish men hatched a plot to murder Paul. Luke doesn't tell us who these men were. Uh, Some people suspect that they were Jewish zealots because we know in those days, Jewish zealots, that was a party of of, uh, uh, those in Israel that were particularly zealous for the traditional ways of Israel. They hated Rome being an occupying force. It was well known that these zealots would carry daggers around underneath their robes that people couldn't see. They carried those concealed weapons, many of them every day of their lives, just in case there was an opportunity to kill a Roman soldier or something. And so some believe maybe these zealots who carried these daggers around went to the Jewish leaders and said, you know what? Uh, Paul is a threat to Judaism. Uh, We'll take him out for you. Maybe. I I think it's more likely, though, that these weren't zealots, but these were those same men that had started that riot and that mob in in the temple grounds just a few days earlier, falsely accusing Paul of spreading lies about Judaism and and blaspheming the temple and bringing Gentiles into the temple courts. And so, in all likelihood, I think it was those same troublemakers from several days earlier that came from the province of Asia that hated Paul back in Ephesus and hated him in Jerusalem even more. Well, over the past 72 hours, Commander Lysias' soldiers had rescued Paul three times from a poorly organized mob. But the conspirators were confident that his soldiers wouldn't be able to rescue Paul from a carefully executed ambush. In fact, they were so confident that their dastardly plan would work that, according to verse 12, they bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. The original Greek words used here, I think, are pretty powerful. Literally, these four men 
cursed themselves with a curse. They cursed themselves with a curse. They were basically saying, may God curse us if we even taste a bite of food before Paul is lying in the street with his blood on our hands. Well, in verses 14 and 15, Luke shares the details of their conspiracy. These 40 plus men, uh, they went to some of the Jewish chief priests and elders to solicit their help. These chief priests and elders were most likely Sadducees who sat on the Sanhedrin. They had already made it clear two days earlier that they thought Paul should be prosecuted. So these 40-plus conspirators, they pulled these yes-men aside and they convinced them to tell the the rest of the Sanhedrin that it's important that we hold a a second hearing to to, to better understand what the charges are against Paul uh, so that we can know whether or not to prosecute. Of course, it was it was all a ploy. It was all a sham. They didn't want to ask Paul questions. They just wanted to kill him along the way. But they knew Commander Lysias wanted to get this matter with Paul behind him. And so he would freely agree to allow this hearing to take place so he could get to the bottom of why Paul was sitting in his in his praetorium there, why Paul was sitting there at the barracks, uh, not knowing why he had been charged and why there was a riot in the first place. And so this ambush seemed like a fool proof plan. Some of the assassins would likely be injured or killed if they attacked Paul on the way to the Sanhedrin's meeting place, but they were willing to be injured or even killed if need be. That's how badly they wanted Paul to be dead. You see, they understood well that between that uh, fortress of Antonia and the meeting place of the Sanhedrin were several city blocks. And along that path, there were twists and turns and some tight alleyways. And so there were some beautiful spots to set up an ambush. And so they were convinced that they could take out Paul. He might have a dozen soldiers around him, but 40 plus men, they could handle 12 soldiers and certainly kill Paul in the process. Well, verse 16 is, I think, pretty surprising. Look at it with me again. It says, but when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Paul had a sister? Who knew? I didn't know Paul had a sister. Says it says so, though, right here. Paul actually had a sister. Evidently, his sister was here in Jerusalem at the time. Quite possibly she lived here in Jerusalem. We're never told, but possibly Paul's parents were still alive. Maybe they still lived in Jerusalem. Maybe Paul also had some other uh, nieces and nephews. Who knows? We're not told much about uh, Paul's family in Scripture. We know that his dad was a strict Jewish Pharisee. We know that Paul's family was living in Tarsus when Paul was born, and then when he was still young, they moved to Jerusalem. We know that Paul wasn't married. He was single. But that's about it. All sorts of questions start swirling in our heads. Questions like, was Paul's sister living in Jerusalem? Was she a resident at the time this takes place? If so, were his parents there? Were his siblings there? Were they living in Jerusalem? Were any of them Christians or were any of them You know, followers of Christ? These are all good questions. Some Christian pastors and teachers point to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss 
compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Catch this last phrase. For whose sake I have lost all things. So some Christians and some Bible scholars read between the lines, especially with that last statement, and say that Paul might have lost his family in the process of becoming a follower of Christ. And so as he walked toward Christ, his family walked away from him. He gained Christ, but he lost his family. Is that the case? Perhaps. There's no way to know for sure. My hunch is that Paul's nephew wasn't a Christian because he was somehow able to get close to the Jewish conspirators to be a fly on the wall. And I don't think he could have done that had they known that he was a Christian. And so my best guess is that Paul's nephew wasn't a Christian. And so he was able to get close enough within earshot to overhear this plot to ambush and kill Paul. Well, verse 16, regardless of whether he was a Christian or not, Paul's nephew made a beeline for the barracks and told Paul exactly what he had overheard. He was family, and he didn't want his uncle to be savagely attacked and murdered in the street. Verse 17, after hearing of the plot, Paul summoned one of the centurions and asked him to take his nephew to Commander Lysias to share with him an important message. So Paul calls his nephew here a young man. So this Greek word for young man normally refers to a man who is in his late teens at the oldest, maybe 20, 21, 22. And so this nephew of Paul's likely was 19 or 20 years old. Verses 19 and 21, Commander Lysias takes Paul's nephew by the hand, pulls him aside and asks him, what is it that you want to tell me? And Paul's nephew proceeds to spill the beans. He tells him everything he had overheard and urges him not to send Paul right into the ambush, not to send Paul right into that trap that would claim his life. Verse 22, the commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Well, with that, we pick up in verse 23. The second part of this passage, where Commander Lysias takes matters into his own hands and, in a real sense, saves the day. Chapter 23, picking up in verse 23. Then Commander Lysias called two of his centurions and he ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Uh, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present their case against him to you. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. 
The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks in Jerusalem. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province Paul was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Well, under the cover of night, once most of Paul's conspirators were at home in their PJs and couldn't present a threat to Paul or to the soldiers that were there trying to protect Paul, the plan was carried out by the officer. He has 470 soldiers who escort Paul out of Jerusalem, 200 armed foot soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. And Paul himself was placed on a horse. So think about that. He gets to be on horseback for the about 60-mile trip down to Caesarea. This is some of the best transportation Paul had had in years. You know, he was used to hoofing it uh, in up and down mountain ranges on foot. Uh, sometimes he'd get to be on a boat, and that was kind of nice. But this is some of the best transportation he'd ever had, and he had it while his life was being threatened and some people wanted to murder him in the streets. Well, anyway, even if the 40-plus men had realized Paul was being escorted out of the city in the middle of the night, they wouldn't have stood a chance against 470 armed Roman soldiers. 40 against 470. Those odds were like 11 to 1, even if they had known about the secret escort out of the city at night. There's no way they could have attacked them. There's no way they could carry out their ambush. Well, those troops traveled through the night approximately 35 miles to the outpost of Antipatris. The next day, the 400-foot soldiers and spearmen returned to Jerusalem as the cavalry of 70 escorted Paul the remaining 25 miles there to Caesarea. That was the Roman capital of the province of Judea. Paul was kept under guard in Herod's palace, which served as a government center there in Caesarea. His case would now be in the hands of the infamous Governor Felix. Doesn't this look like a real sweet guy? Don't you just want to sit down and have coffee with this guy? He looks mean in the painting because he was a pretty mean dude. Historians have some interesting things to tell us about Governor Felix. At this point in history, he was uh, there uh, governing Judea. Yeah, he governed Judea for about five years before Paul arrived. He governed it for another two years after Paul uh, arrived. So he governed Judea for a period of about seven years. And interestingly, Governor Felix had begun his life as a slave. Interesting that he worked his way up in a sense from being a slave to being a governor of a Roman province. How is that possible? Well, his brother Pallas was a favorite of Emperor Nero and Emperor Claudius. They both loved the guy for one reason or another. And so because his brother was favored, Pallas was able to pull some strings on behalf of his brother. And so he pulled some strings and was able to get uh, his brother Felix out of slavery. So Felix went from being a slave to being what was called a freedman, someone that was no longer under the bounds of slavery. And through a few more strings being pulled, he eventually became the first uh, Roman governor who had at some point in his life been a slave. He was the one and only at the time. 
Pretty remarkable. That's really working your way up the ranks. Well, you might think that his meteoric rise out of slavery softened Felix and made him kinder to his subjects, but it was quite the opposite. He was notorious for being ruthless and violent, especially when he sensed an uprising. At times, he even tried uh, to hire hitmen and succeeded to hire hitmen to kill some of his staunch supporters because he was jealous or, or thought they might try to rebel against him. And so he killed some of his own supporters. The Roman historian Tacitus, uh, one of the most respected uh, Roman historians of the first century, he writes this about Governor Felix. He exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Well, this was the fine, upstanding leader before whom Paul would stand trial in the next chapter. Well, now before moving on to a few life lessons I want to share with you here at the end of the message, I want to draw your attention to one little section that I skipped when I was explaining what happened after he left Jerusalem. I want us to focus for a quick moment on verses 26 through 30. Notice this letter that uh, the uh, officer, uh, Lysias, writes to Governor Felix. There are a few things that I think are important to, to point out here and to understand. I want you to notice, number one, the information in the letter is mostly truthful and accurate. So as he gets Felix up to speed on who Paul is and why he's being sent to Governor Felix, his information in those four verses is, is pretty accurate. But also notice number two, it presents Gov Commander Lysias in a very favorable light. It's very rosy in how he presents himself. Uh, notice there's this brush of, hey, I'm the hero running through this entire letter. Look at verse 27. The Jews were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. What about this? Commander Lysias conveniently had left out that he only discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen after he was about to have him scourged, which was outlawed for a Roman citizen. Remember, Paul spoke up and said, hey, is it, is it lawful to, uh, to, to whip and to scourge a Roman citizen? And so you remember that Commander Lysias here was in hot water. He almost broke the law, almost lost his job, maybe even his own life over how he had handled Paul. But he doesn't say any of that in his letter. You'll notice in Commander Lysias' letter that he uses the pronoun I a lot. I came with my troops and rescued him. I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I was informed of a plot. I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So there was definitely some self-promotion going on in Commander Lysias' letter. But the fact remains, as he had his troops escort Paul safely to Governor Felix, that was the fourth time in four days that Commander Lysias had been rescued, excuse me, that Paul had been rescued by Commander Lysias from an angry mob. So flaws and all, God worked through Commander Lysias to get Paul safely on his way to Rome. So, braggadocious or not, God used him to carry out his purpose and plan. I like how Warren Wearsby makes this excellent point. He writes, Throughout the book of Acts, Dr. Luke speaks favorably of the Roman military officers. 
beginning with Cornelius in Acts 10 and ending with Julius in Acts 27. There's no record in Acts of official Roman persecution against the church. The opposition was instigated by the unbelieving Jews. While the empire had its share of corrupt political opportunists, for the most part, the military leaders were men of quality who respected the Roman law. That's a really good point. Roman leaders like Nero and Domitian had a vendetta against Christians and against the church, and they leveled fierce attacks against them when they ruled in Rome. But the book of Acts reminds us that persecution didn't tend to come from the Roman military officers or the rank and file in the Roman military. More times than not, at least in the early years of Christianity, persecution came at the hands of Jewish nationalists who hated Christianity with a passion. And with that, let's look at three life lessons that we can pull from this great passage today. Here we go. Life lesson number one. When God makes you a promise, you can afford to be bold in carrying out his marching orders. Amen? When God makes you a promise, you can afford to be bold in carrying out his marching orders. I just love what Jesus said to Paul in verse 11 of this chapter. Take courage. Be brave. Be of good cheer. Why? Because as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you will testify about me in Rome. I love to remind people that there is no safer place to be on earth than in the very center of God's will. Think about that. There's no safer or better place for you to be than in the center of God's will. When you are right where he wants you to be, doing exactly what he wants you to do, you can afford to be bold and courageous for him, can't you? Because he's made you some promises. He's promised you that he will be with you. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's promised to command his angels concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. He's promised that the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say when you're under attack. He's promised that he will bring to completion the work that he's doing in you. And there are plenty of other promises where those came from. Amen? Plenty of other promises. Since God's word and God's promises are as good as gold, allow his good promises to embolden you to say what he calls you to say and to do what he calls you to do. I believe in my heart that some of you need to hear that message today. Whatever he's called you to say, be bold and say it. And whatever he's called you to do, be courageous and say it for his glory. Life lesson number two. Most of the time, God doesn't use extraordinary means to accomplish his purposes. He uses ordinary people and ordinary circumstances to carry out his will. Here in Acts 23, God fulfilled his promise to protect Paul by working through three ordinary men. He worked through Paul's nephew, he worked through Commander Lysias, and he worked through Governor Felix. There's a really good chance that not a single one of these three men was saved, but God used them anyway to work all things together for the good of that man, Paul, who had been called according to God's purpose and loved God with all his heart. 
For every one time that God does the extraordinary, he works thousands of times through ordinary people and ordinary circumstances. On occasion, God will part the Red Sea or he'll hold the sun in place or send fire down from heaven or cause a donkey to talk or raise someone from the dead. But every day, God works in unremarkable ways through thousands of ordinary people in ordinary circumstances. We may never hear of Paul's nephew ever again. We never heard of him again in Scripture. Once this chapter comes to an end, we never hear of his nephew. We may have never hear of Commander Lysias again. We certainly don't hear about him after this chapter. But God used each of those men. Paul's nephew and Commander Lysias, God used them at this time and at this place to help carry out his great plans and purposes. So I, I want you to do this. Thank God today for the ordinary people and the ordinary circumstances that are around you that God has used to help carry out his great and awesome plan in your life. God has used the ordinary to carry out in the long term the extraordinary. Finally, life lesson number three. Somewhere inside you, there's a bold, scrappy bulldog. So let him loose. Be a bulldog for Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen to that? Be a bulldog for Jesus Christ. As long as we allow Jesus to hold our leash, you and I need to be more bulldog-like. As time goes on, following Jesus isn't getting any easier. It's getting much harder. Persecution against Christians isn't diminishing. It's growing. So Jesus doesn't want us to be like the two Irish setters who start whining and running into the house at the first sign of an attack because we're tired of dealing with it day in and day out. We need to be like the bulldog, standing strong in our faith standing firm in our convictions, speaking boldly for Jesus. And when we take some lumps for our Lord, we got to lick our wounds and do it all over again the next day. Amen? Paul was a courageous, scrappy, bulldog for Jesus. And I want to be a courageous, scrappy, bulldog for Jesus Christ. Who's in it with me? Are you in? Let's be scrappy together for our great and awesome God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come to you wanting so much to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, the greatest, most influential Christian of the past 2,000 years. Lord Jesus, we want to be resilient like Paul. We want to persevere like Paul. We want to be courageous and brave and scrappy like Paul. He probably wasn't the tallest guy in the room, but he had the most endurance. Lord, he probably wasn't even the brightest man in the room. But Lord, he used what he had for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Lord, you know our desire. We want to make a greater impact in our homes in our families, in our community for Jesus Christ. We want to bring heaven to our corner of the world. So, Lord, help us as it becomes more and more difficult to stand for you in this nation. I pray that we would stand more firmly than ever before. As, Lord, people more and more are turning away from Christ, 
I pray, O God, that we would proclaim Christ more faithfully and courageously than ever before. Lord, help us to be more bulldog-like in the way that we live. May we speak the truth with bulldog grit. We want to do it in love, O God, for sure. But help us to have that dogged determination, just like Paul, to stand against the attacks, to advance the cause of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are so glad that you are here today. So glad that you've joined us for this service and this message. If you are here and you've never put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life, please do that today. A, B, C. A, admit that you are a sinner. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And C, choose to, choose to accept him as Savior and Lord of your life right now. I encourage you to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life right now. I encourage you to get baptized as soon as possible, to make it clear to God, the angels, or anyone who's watching, I am serious about this decision. I'm obeying Christ. I am following Christ from this point forward. If you've made that decision today, or if you need prayer, reach out to us. You can reach us by email at info at greaterimpact.cc, or you can call us by phone at 760-246-4100. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you if we can be a blessing to you today. And those of you who are watching this broadcast that are Christians, remember to be scrappy for Jesus this week. Remember to persevere. Remember to be bold. Remember to be courageous because we don't need to whimper and run back into the house. We need to take a stand for Jesus Christ, but do it in love. God bless you as you serve and love and trust our Lord this week.